Matthew. We are in our final message, per se, of our Advent series. We do this every year. Um, it's really been a, a pattern for seven years now where beginning in December, we begin an Advent series. We stop what we've been doing, going through books of the Bible, and we focus on the coming of Jesus. And uh, it's it's really encouraging time. It's uh, challenging uh, for the preacher, I must say, uh, every year trying to come up with a slightly different version of the story. But it's such an amazing story, it actually is not that difficult, is it? Uh, we just keep reading it and allow the Holy Spirit to speak into us. One of the things uh, we've done this year, our theme for the series this year is, What Child Is This? And we've been seeing some interesting things through this series. But also, we've been trying to encourage one another that, um, yes, we know that there are other stories being told out there in our culture today. Anybody heard any other stories, right? Guy in a red suit, that story, right? And, and all of those stories. And, and the one thing we've discovered is this, and I hope it's true, is that uh, these are good stories. They're fun. Um, typically, the Christian church for the past 40, 50, 60 years is, you know, I, I like to say, got their knickers in a knot over it, you know, because Starbucks cups don't have, you know, Jesus on the cup, or, you know, it's Xmas versus, you know, and happy holidays. And, and we get all excited about that in the wrong way. Instead, we realize, we should realize, that it's not their job, right, to tell the story that we're supposed to be telling. And so that's one of the reasons why we want to go over it every year is so that we, we truly understand that uh, the story is about Jesus coming, right, 2018 years ago, but that it is also our responsibility to tell the world about this story. And so, again, I'm very excited about tomorrow night that so many people are coming uh, to the services tomorrow night where we get to tell the whole story from beginning to end and in one hour. So it's going to be a challenge, but it's also going to be very exciting. But on that note, I thought I'd do something a little silly this morning because one of the things we've done over the last few weeks is we've looked at, you know, movies, like all of the Christmas movies that are out there. And, and it's interesting most of the Christmas movies, if you look at them, whether it's Elf or, you know, It's a Wonderful Life, doesn't matter what it is, they're, again, they're stories. Like, they're just stories, right? And we, we, we should look at them on that value. But in every one of those stories, there's kind of a savior, isn't there? Every story has a savior and, and has a people who need saving. So even in those stories, we can see the gospel, not fully fleshed out, but we can certainly see it and point it out. But I, I just want to bring your attention to some of the songs we sing at Christmas too, right? Everybody knows Nat King Cole, right? And, and all those wonderful songs, and don't get me singing, but, and, and they're lovely stuff, right? There's jingle bells and things like that. But I want to bring to your attention this morning one that I, I just, I saw being sung, um, I think it was uh, Michael Buble was singing it on a TV special this past week, awesome singer, you know, a lovely song, but you know, like a guy, a really good crooner, and he's trying to be serious about this song called Santa's Coming to Town. Now, you all know this song, right? And I, I think about this song, and I just wanted to think about it for a second here, because I don't know, like, do you sing this song? Do we, we sing this song and we take it seriously? You know, like it says this. And, and this is, this is, the song is aimed at our kids. You just want to be aware of that, right? It starts off with, you better watch out, you better not cry. <laughs> right? You better not pout, I'm telling you why. Santa Claus is coming to town. Lovely words, isn't it, right? And then it goes on, it says, he's making a list, he's checking it twice, he's going to find out who's naughty or nice. Santa Claus is coming to town. Isn't it cheerful, right? I, you know, anyway, it goes on, it says, he sees when you are sleeping. Okay, that, that's creepy, isn't it? I mean, he knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good, you be good for goodness sake. 
Now, I want to tell you something. I love my mom. She passed away a couple of years ago. She used to use this on me. <laughs> like, serious. like a week or two before Christmas, I would pout or I would do something wrong. And she'd go, you could be going from the good list to the naughty list. Right? You better watch out. You better not cry. You better... I, I, I was reading this this week, and I thought to myself, you know what? Um, Santa's theology is a bit works-based, isn't it? <laughs> okay, that was a... Christian joke. Maybe you didn't get that one, but it's interesting. We look at these stories, right? And, and, and we sing these to these kids, and crooners sing them on television, and they're all happy go luckily. And I'm not trying to say they're bad or make undue fun of it, but it's kind of weird when you think about it. Okay. Matthew chapter 2, if you have your Bibles with you open. I'm going to read our passage for today, the main part of our passage. We've been looking at in our Advent series, What Child Is This? And we've answered it in the first three, three weeks this way He is God number one. Number two, he is man. He is fully man for God, fully God for man. Thirdly, he is Savior. And today we see one last attribute, an important attribute. He is king. He is king. So let me read the first 12 verses of Matthew chapter 2, and then uh, we're going to pray one more time. We're going to dive in for today. Now, Matthew writing, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who is born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, O you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Pray with me, would you? Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this record of the story of these wise men coming to Jerusalem, of King Herod of Mary and Joseph and of Jesus. Father, I just pray today, I pray as we look at this, we will see, we will see what a king he is. What a king he is. Thank you. Thank you, Lord, for sending him. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for coming. Thank you for living the perfect life that we cannot live, and thank you for dying the death that we deserve so that we can live in you. Oh, Father, we thank you for these things. In Jesus' worthy name, amen. So your uh, sermon title again for today is, What Child Is This? He is King. Hope to show you three things from this passage and others that we will look at. 
Number one, we're going to look at the wannabe king. Then we're going to look at the newborn king. And as we've been doing each week, we're going to look at this story and see where we find the best story ever, the story of Jesus coming 2018 years ago, within this text, as we've been seeing within every other text. So number one, the wannabe king. Let's have a look at that. Begins in the first two verses. I'll put them on screen again. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who is born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So we have a very famous record here of an event that some would say is, some would say, uh, and have said, it's not really part of the birth story. Um, they say that, like, I mean, after all, look into the text, it says that after he was born, right? And so people wonder, like, why, why are we actually looking at this as part of the, the, the birth story? They would say after, and besides that question, it's interesting how the story has also been related over the years. I mean, sure, most of you know that there's a song called We Three Kings of Orient, right? And if you look at any nativities, we actually have one at home, and I thought it was kind of interesting the way Janice laid it out. We have a nativity, and, you know, it's a little stable, right? And there's baby Jesus, and there's Mary and Joseph, and, of course, there's animals, which we don't read about in the Scripture, but they're there, right? Horses and lammies and things like that, right? And then the, the, the cool thing was is there was actually a shepherd who was holding a lammy right there, which is lammies, what we call them for our kids. And, and then, but also she had, like, there's the little table there, and then up, up, up on the fireplace mantle, there's the three kings, right? Which is kind of appropriate because they're separate from, because they, they actually weren't there on that night, right? But, but also, here's, here's the thing. We, 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 we come to the conclusion, or we think these wise men, that there were actually three, right? We actually think there are three. And again, that's partly because of the song, and it's partly because of some sermons. But the only reason why we think that is because there were apparently, and there are, according to the text, three gifts given, right? So that's where people jump to that conclusion. But Historians will tell you that these type of magi, these wise men, uh, traveled quite often, taking gifts to various kings and to various areas, and they would typically be in a group of anywhere from 10 to 12, and they'd have others, servants, and others traveling with them. So it would probably be a group of men anywhere from 10 to 12. They also traveled, it says, from the text we get this understanding that they traveled from the east, which would be the orient, and that would be a distance of some seven to possibly 900 miles. So that's one of the clues that really is pointing us to a time after the birth of Jesus. After the birth of Jesus, possibly as long as several weeks or maybe months. Now, some want to extend it out further than that, but I'm going to say it's a good two to three months, maybe four months after Jesus is born, and I think we'll see that this morning. The first clue is that they look like they saw the star. They saw the star, and then they started to head to Jerusalem. So if you do the math and you start to figure this out, depending on weather and the conditions of the roads, once they saw the star, they started moving towards Jerusalem, and that, again, would take three, maybe four months. But that there then tells us that this is legitimately part of the birth story of Jesus. And why do I say that? Because the star appeared on the night that he was born. And that's when they started going. So they're looking for a star. They see this star, and off they go. Secondly, and we'll see this again later, but as we read earlier, when they arrive at the place where Jesus is, it tells us that they entered, look at this, the house. Right? It tells us they entered a house, not, not a barn, not a stable, not somewhere outside the inn. So again, 
It's a few months afterwards. It is part of the birth story. I just want to clear that up so that we can keep going today, right? It is part of that. And so I think what we need to do in order to really get the depth of this story is we need to look at some of the characters. Let's start with this guy, Herod. This is an interesting character, to say the least. Very, very interesting man. I I was reading a a number of things just to refresh my memory about Herod the Great, because that is the title that he was given. And I read one commentary, uh, a really well-respected historian, who answered uh, that question, who was this man and and, and what do we know about him? Uh, He answered it this way. He said, he is the one figure from the ancient world on whom we have more primary evidence from original sources than anyone else in the world. The answer is not Jesus or the Apostle Paul or Caesar Augustus or Julius Caesar or Alexander the Great, for that matter. No, it's Herod the Great. Why? Because the Jewish historian Josephus wrote two whole book scrolls on the life of Herod the Great. And that is more primary material than anyone else. So, suffice to say, he's a popular historical figure that people know a lot about. What we know about him is that he was, on the one hand, we know this, he was a very successful man. Uh, He actually did many great things, and that's why he was bestowed with the title Herod the Great. Uh, He was put in charge. He was a successful politician who was put in charge with keeping the peace between Roman occupiers and the Jewish people in the region around Jerusalem. But here's here's the thing. He actually wasn't really a king. He was a wannabe king. He was a wannabe king. In those days, they had something called client kings. So if, if the Romans came in and occupied, took over an area, and there was a ruler in that area who they respected and they thought could have control and had demonstrated control over the people, rather than put their own person in charge, their own military person in charge, they would co-opt this person and make him a client king and allow him to continue to rule over that area. And so they occupied and conquered uh, Rome, did uh, the area of around Jerusalem and and, um, Israel around 63 B.C., and they put Herod in charge from approximately 40 B.C. until 4 A.D. So he he doesn't live that long, this man, after the birth of Jesus. That's interesting. His successes were actually many. Describing him as great is, is fair in that he accomplished a lot of great things. He was the one, of course, who rebuilt the temple. And for the people of Israel, for the Jewish religious leaders, this garnered him a lot of respect and a lot of praise, right? So he was successful from that perspective. He built great cities, including the seaport of Caesarea. It took 12 years, a lot of labor, a lot of money, a lot of effort to build this city. And people loved him for that. He also commissioned many, many wonderful upgrades to the sewer system, the systems and the utilities of Jerusalem, the big city itself, including building large stadiums and theaters, along with a massive palace for himself, of course, up on a hill, right, so that he could be seen. And so in those ways, in those ways, Herod was great. He was great. Our text continues in verses 3 and 4 with this. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. And all Jerusalem was troubled with him. And assembling all the priests chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So the other thing that we learn from historians is that on the personal level, um, Herod was a disaster. 
His personal life was a bit of a disaster, to say the least. Um, And we see here in this text that here's a man who's displaying a fair bit of paranoia, wouldn't you think, about a child. (laughs) And some wise men who come and say there's this new king of the Jews. There have been many coming along who said they were king of the Jews. But this one child, he's quite paranoid. This man in particular is quite paranoid about. Well, there's reasons for that. He's an interesting character. Herod had ten wives. That kept him busy, I'm sure. He had many sons from these ten wives. And what happened during his lifetime was that many of these sons, he he suspected, were plotting a coup, (laughs) were plotting maybe to take him out so that they could be in his place. It's a very powerful family. And so Herod, in his wonderful uh, personal life and in his paranoia, he actually had many of his sons put to death. He had them killed, of course, under the guise of treason. He had one wife put to death for the same reason. At least we know those historically are true. And so it's interesting how he feels threatened. They were all put to death because they threatened his position as the king, wannabe king. <laughs> now, I think it's easy for us to say, well, yeah, listen, that, that's, that's typically what happens to a lot of men who get into positions of power, isn't it? They abuse their position of power. I mean, it's not hard to extrapolate today uh, to looking around our world and see that we've been in a time when, yeah, there's been a lot of men who've abused their power and taken advantage of power. But I think we need to be careful and not miss that Herod, listen, Herod sees a baby, (laughs) an infant, right? A mere child is a threat. And and at this point in his life, he's, he's an old man. He's not a young fellow anymore. He's an old man. You'd think he'd be thinking about a successor, even with his own family. So, friends, I think we need to be really, really honest about this. And I was thinking about this week, and I don't know how to illustrate it any more effectively for you than this. But think about it. Isn't the birth of Jesus, a baby, an infant, at Christmas, and the story of that who's coming because you need a savior, a threat to a lot of us, to a lot of our aspirations to be king of our own lives at least, the king of our own castle at least, it's a threat. Always has been from the day he was born. So let's note so far this. Let's note this. There are two kings in the story. One is a threat to the other. There are these wise men or as some of your translations might call them, magi. And the reason why they call them magi or translate it magi, because that is the actual Greek word, right? In the translation, in the Greek, is magi. And uh, so that's... And and it actually is where we get the English word magician, right? And so in those days, they, they, yes, some of them were magicians and performed, but it was a different form of magic. In some cases, it was actually black magic, but they were quite different men, Let's read on in our text, and we'll learn more about these guys in a minute. They then told him, these Jewish leaders told him, that he would be born in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, O you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah are by no means, are by no means, least among the rulers of Judah. For from you you shall come a ruler who will be shepherd of my people Israel." 
So the Jewish leaders, of course, I mean, they knew their Bibles. <laughs> they knew their Old Testament. They knew where the Messiah was to be born. Um, it's interesting also, isn't it, that, that all of Jerusalem was concerned about this news? Um, it's interesting that they all were concerned about this news. But they knew, and they, and they quoted in this passage here, they quoted the prophet Micah who, uh, to make their case. And so Herod, listen, it's clear he's no fool. He's been around a few times. He's had a few people come who wanted to take him down and take him out, who he's dealt with. He's very successful at protecting his kingship, and so he uses a well-known pattern for him. I'm going to get some other people to do my dirty work for me. I'm going to send out some spies and find out what's going on, what's going on here. He has this private meeting with these wise men, asking them when the star first arrived. That's really, really wise and smart on his part, isn't it? He knows now, based on what they have told him and the time frame it took them to get to Jerusalem, approximately how old this child is. Smart guy. Devious, but smart. And then he says to these wise men this, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Uh Uh-huh. Right. Sure. Well, the wise men leave Herod's private little conversation that they've had with him, and immediately they pick up the sight of the star again when they leave his castle, and it leads them to the place where Jesus is, and then it rests and stops over the house. So we've seen the wannabe king, and now we want to look at the newborn king. This is much better news goes on to say, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and they worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. It's rather interesting, isn't it, that the whole story of Christmas and why we give gifts at Christmas to each other and to our children is from this place in the Christmas story that actually took place a few months after the birth of Jesus. But that's actually where it comes from. So Jesus is there with his mother Mary, we are told, and without hesitation, I want you to see this. We don't have time to dig into it much this morning, and we could because it's interesting what is going on here with these men. But interestingly is this, without hesitation, it appears from the text, they simply fell down and worshipped him. Now, I don't want to press too much into the text, but I think we must assume a little bit that when they arrive at the door and Joseph lets them in, there's a little bit like, well, who are you? (laughs) Who are you guys? We've never met you before. There must have been some conversations with these men. Who are you? Well, we're wise men from the east. We're, I mean, you know, we have an entourage here. We've been traveling. We saw this star. They must have shared this information with them. You remember when the shepherds came to Mary on the night of Jesus' birth, and they told them everything that the angels had told them, and Mary stored it up in her heart. Remember that? She held these things in her heart. Mary's, I I was visited by an angel. Jesus was born of the Holy Spirit. The, The conversation must have taken place. These men came expecting the star was leading them to the king, the Messiah. How did they know that? Well, we're going to get there. But that conversation must have taken place. And upon confirmation, 
they fell down and they worshipped a child. I, I, I hope and pray for all of us this Christmas that, yes, we, there's much more to the story of Jesus that is about our salvation, right? How he lived his life, how he was persecuted and suffered and died in our place and for our sins on the cross and then rose victorious over it. It's, a, it's got a pretty good ending, doesn't it? But his birth as a child is worth falling down upon our knees and worshiping too. Amen? And so they do what is appropriate when a new monarch is born. Say they would have visited other monarchs, these wise men, maybe hoping that this next monarch would be the next great king, at least better than the last one, and bestowing gifts. They did. Kindly gifts at that. That's all we're told, and, and, and as I said, there's much more depth, but, but we need to go on because there's much more to this story that we need to see this morning, much more. The last verse that I read for you this morning is this, and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now, I, honestly, I remember reading this passage over the years, and I'm thinking, what, what is with, what's with that? Like, okay, why, why was this all set up like this? And who are these guys? Why are they part of this story? What's so important about this? It's, it's magical. It's neat, right? And all the rest of it. But what is really going on here? Well, in order for us to see that, I think we now need to look at these other characters in the story. We need to look more closely at these men, these wise men, these magis, and ask ourselves exactly who were they? Who were these men? They were interesting men. Their origin actually goes back about eight to 900 years. Um, it actually goes back before the birth of Jesus, I should say, to about the year 680 B.C. to about 550 B.C., primarily from the land of Persia and also Babylon, primarily Babylon, which is interesting. In those times, they were, they were the advisors in the inner courts to most of the kings and rulers in those days. Which is an interesting tie-in to what we just saw here. Herod, again, smart guy, you know, devious. He co-ops the local religious leaders and bring because they might have some connection to God, you know, and so he co-ops them into his court to be his advisors about where this baby is being born. And so that's interesting as well. But there is an even more remarkable, remarkable tie-in and clue here, and it's these words that I've highlighted in this text: warned in a dream. Now, many of you will remember who were part of the Rock Church uh, a couple of years ago. We uh, went through a, a complete book of the Old Testament. That's one of my favorite. It's the book of Daniel. It's very interesting. And I remember going through that book and reading through that book, and all of a sudden, some dominoes started to tip when lights went off and connections were made for myself and I think for some of you as well. So you know in that story that, uh, of course, uh, there's another king, and his name is Nebuchadnezzar. And the people of Israel have been taken into captivity um, and taken to Babylon. And, of course, Daniel and three of his teenage buddies are, are brought into the king's court. And, and they're, they're going to be, as very young boys, they're going to be trained because they're healthy and they're the smartest from the people of Israel at, at a young age that are brought into his, his courts. And they're going to be trained in, in the best schools in Babylon, in secular uh, theory and so forth, but also in the ways of the Magi. The Magi, because the Magi were Nebuchadnezzar's advisors in his inner court. 
So you'll also remember that in that book there were a couple of dreams, and Nebuchadnezzar had a lot of dreams, right? They were nightmares, but they were dreams. And, and the second one that he has is a very interesting nightmare, and he's gotten to the point in this nightmare dream where he's, he's, he thinks that his, his, um, his magi might be charlatans, right? He's a little dubious about how real they are, like, these guys really know, or are they just making this stuff up? So he, he devises a new plan. He says, I'll tell you what. Here's the way it's going to go down. I'm not going to tell you the dream, and so you can make up some interpretation. You need to tell me the dream and the interpretation, or you're going to die. You tell me the dream and the interpretation, and I will bestow upon you gifts like you wouldn't believe. Well, the Magi are like, oh, dear great king, nobody would ask such silly things of us. You know, no one's ever done that. I mean, who could possibly know the answers to that question other than the gods? Smartest thing they probably ever said, right? So Nebuchadnezzar gets quite angry, and uh, they can't tell him who the answer... Uh, uh, they can't tell him what the dream was, or certainly, therefore, what the interpretation was. And so he sends out an edict, and he, and he, he, he gets his, his captain of the guard... Uh, of the military to, his name is Arioch, to, he gives the order to have all of the wise men, all of the magi, including Daniel and his buddies, killed, put to death, because they were seen to be in the same group of people. So Daniel, of course, in that story, he pleads with Arioch, the captain of the guard, and says to him, it's interesting, what he says to him is he says, please speak to the king and ask him not, listen, not to kill the wise men. But instead, tell him that in the morning I will come, I will tell him the dream, and I will interpret the dream for him. That's a really important point. A really important point. Daniel goes home and he prays. God gives him the dream and the interpretation. The next day, Daniel goes to the court. He tells the king, Nebuchadnezzar, what the dream was, and the interpretation of the dream. Nebi, I like to call him, is a bit surprised. These are his words, or what is said afterwards. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly, listen, your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. He goes on to say, or it goes on to say, then the king, look at this, gave Daniel high honors and many gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. From the days of that event, 650 years before the birth of Jesus, God hears the prayer of this young man, Daniel. He then is able to not only provide the answers to Nebuchadnezzar's dream, but look at this. He is able to save the lives of all of the wise men of Babylon, all of the magi of Babylon. He's had them placed under his tutelage and his training for the rest of his days in Babylon, which from this point in time, we gather from the history of that time, is about another 50 years, that he is the chief prefect over all of the wise men, the magi of Babylon. Let me ask you a few questions. 
Do you think they learned anything about Daniel's God from Daniel? Yeah. Do you think they were grateful for the grace that was shown to them by the God of Israel saving them in those days? Do you think they maybe got this passed down over the generations, over the centuries, this story, what happened with Daniel to their sons and their sons and their sons and their sons? Do you think it's possible that that happened? And do you think that they also were, and they were, astronomers, and they began looking, as Daniel taught them, for the star, for the star, and they were always looking for this star? And then 600 years later, some magi see a star, and they follow that star, and they follow that star all the way to the newborn king. God's word is remarkable. Amen? Can't make this stuff up, C.S. Lewis said. You can't. Stories written over a period of 1,500 years by 40-plus authors that all tell the same true story. That's just remarkable. The newborn king. Number three, best story ever. Best story ever. I'll put that last verse back on screen for you. So again, we, we conclude today with where, where is the best story ever in this story, right? And let me, let me put it this way. That's a pretty good story, isn't it? Like what we've just seen so far about these, these wise men and, and the gifts and, and the linkage to Daniel and the, the God's sovereignty and the whole thing. Isn't that really the best story? That's a great story. Well, in order for us to get to the best story ever this morning, we've got to keep going because there's more to this story. I know some of you are going, it's Christmas, Glenn, but there's more to this story. Let me just read it for you. If you have your Bibles with you, follow along with me because the story hasn't ended yet. And I'm just going to read it. I'm not going to put it on screen, but it says in chapter 2, verse 13, it says this, now when they had departed... Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Joseph, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt, I shall call my son, in a dream, to fulfill a prophecy. It goes on in verse 19. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take up the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are now dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, He was afraid to go there. And you're not going to believe this. Being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee and went and and lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophet would be fulfilled that he would be a Nazarene. So listen, I'm sure that most of you, most of us today know another word for a monarch in our world today, right? To, for a king. What is another word? Anybody know another word that we could use for monarch or for king in our world today? What would it be? Two syllables. Sorry? 
Sovereign. Exactly. Sovereign. So I want to suggest to you throughout this whole text, this story of the Magi and the two kings, let me ask, have we not seen, have we not seen the sovereignty and the providence of God throughout? How remarkable, really, really. I mean, think about it. Jesus, think about it. Jesus, the Son of God, has, has left heaven where he's God, right? And, and he's created the heavens and the earth. And, and he has all of his faculties, all of his power. He, he has, and he decides to become flesh and become part of us. And he's a child. He's a baby. He's a real baby, by the way. He's as, he's as alert, humanly speaking, as any of your children are at two, three, four months of age. He is completely, completely dependent on whom? Well, he's dependent on mom to feed him and dad to do certain things to protect him, but isn't it beautiful that he's fully trusting and able to trust in a God who's completely in control of everything? Everything. Even to speak dreams into people's minds and hearts and say, okay, yeah, I knew this was going to happen. It's okay. Go here. Go there. And so forth. There's a great lesson in that that we could go more deeply into at some other point in time, but I hope you can see this today, that this is the best part of this story, is the sovereignty and the providence of God. So let me ask you this. If the God of the universe is able to orchestrate details like this over hundreds and hundreds of years, and then over a period of maybe three or four days in such a way that we're obviously pre-aligned before the foundation of the world, if he is able to do that... That, is he not able to look after you and me and every single detail of our lives? Because I'll tell you what, <laughs> I don't know about you, but I'm still a child as a full grown, well, five foot seven, 63 year old male. I'm still a child in these things. And I'm fully dependent on my God and my Savior. And I hope you are too. I think uh, the Lord gave us a verse. He spoke it to the prophet Jeremiah. You all know this verse. I'm going to end with it. It was his words. It was God's words to the prophet Jeremiah to give to the people in Babylon, in captivity, that was to speak about the fact that he would look after them, take care of them, that he had their best in mind all the time. Everything. God is good to everyone all the time. Amen? Jeremiah 29, 11 is this. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. These are the words he gave to the people of Israel at the same time he was saying, by the way, build houses, plant gardens, have babies, die in Babylon. That was his plan for them. That was his plan for them. So I hope, friends, you'll see today, this is the best story ever, isn't it? It's the best story ever. What child is this? He is God. He is man. He is Savior. And he is King. King. Pray with me, would you?